We are in a series in Isaiah, the final message of 10. Last week we are looking at that message of grace and this week we are looking at something a little bit different. We are looking at how should we really respond to Isaiah's prophecy, what is God looking for us in the way in which we respond. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them to Isaiah chapter 66. I'm going to read from verse 1 and then pray. Isaiah 66. Let's read. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called... No one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city. A sound from the temple. The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we pray that you would silence all chattering lips. Lord, that you would silence our wearing minds. Lord, we pray for quiet and stillness and open ears that we might hear your word, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to start by reading you... um, reading to you a press release from the Department of Defence entitled Ben Robert Smith awarded the Victoria Cross. As you might be aware, the Victoria Cross is the highest honour available in the Australian defence. On 11th of June 2010, Ben Robert Smith of the Special Operations Task Group conducted a helicopter assault in Tizak, Kandahar province in order to capture and or kill a senior Taliban commander. Immediately upon the helicopter insertion, Robert Smith was engaged by machine gun and rocket-propelled grenade fire from multiple 
dominating positions. Two soldiers were wounded in action and he was pinned down by fire from three machine guns in an elevated fortified position to the south of the village. Under the cover of close air support, suppressive small arms and machine gun fire, Robert Smith and his patrol manoeuvred to within 70 metres of the enemy position in order to neutralise the enemy machine gun positions and regain the initiative. Upon commencement of the assault, the patrol, the patrol drew very heavy, intense and sustained fire from the enemy position. Robert Smith and his patrol members fought towards the enemy position until at a range of 40 metres, the weight of fire prevented further movement forward. At this point, he identified the opportunity to exploit some cover provided by a small structure. As he approached the structure, Robert Smith identified an insurgent grenadier in the throes of engaging his patrol. Robert Smith shot the insurgent at point-blank range. With the members of his patrol still pinned down by the three enemy machine gun positions, he exposed his own position in order to draw fire away from his patrol, which enabled them to bring fire to bear against the enemy. His actions enabled his patrol commander to throw a grenade and silence one of the machine guns. Seizing the advantage and demonstrating extreme devotion to duty, Robert Smith, with a total disregard for his own safety, stormed the enemy position, killing the two remaining machine gunners. His act of valour enabled his patrol to break into the enemy position and to lift the weight of fire from the remainder of the troop who had been pinned down by machine gun fire. On seizing the fortified gun position, Corporal Robert Smith then took the initiative again and continued to assault enemy positions. His acts of selfless valour directly enabled his troop to go on and clear the village of Tizak of Taliban. This decisive engagement subsequently caused the remainder of the Taliban in Shawali Khot district to retreat from the area. I think there's something about that story that just stirs your heart, isn't it? Something about this man's solo acts of valour that's really, really heartwarming and stirring, isn't it? I mean, Ben Robert Smith is an Aussie legend. He's a military hero. He is an example of bravery and greatness and someone who we as a community admire and look up to and think, awesome, I'm proud to be an Australian and see someone act like that on my behalf. And the media, really, our media bombards us with images of greatness all the time, doesn't it? Images of great sports people like Usain Bolt and Kathy Freeman or of great businessmen like Richard Branson or like Larry Page or great performers like Nicole Kidman and Mick Jagger or great leaders like Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela or even great Christian leaders like Billy Graham or John Piper. The question is, and the question that I want to address this morning, is when we come to Scripture, what does God consider great? When it comes to God's Word, what is God looking for? And this morning we're going to see that in Isaiah 66, the Lord is not impressed with any of these things. He's not impressed with skill. He's not impressed with wealth. He's not impressed with influence or fame or popularity 
or leadership skill or preaching ability. None of these things draw his attention. What impresses him is something far different. So this morning we have a message entitled, Behold Your Redeemer in His Look. Three points, the Lord, the lost, and the look. But one hope that I'll really be driving this morning, looking at this morning, that I hope you get this morning, and that is that that we would see that God looks to those who humbly trust in Him. God's gaze is drawn to those who just humbly trust Him at His word, humbly trust in Him. Well, point one this morning, the Lord. I think to rightly understand what draws the gaze, the look of the Lord, we we need to first understand who he is in Isaiah. And we've seen lots of different things throughout this series about God and and what he's like in Isaiah. We've seen, first and foremost, that he's the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has that vision of the throne of God and the cherubim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. The Lord of hosts, he's also the Lord of armies. He's the Lord who sovereignly rules over all the armies of the earth and rules over the entire earth. He's the judge of nations. Chapters 13 through to 27, it's just this long indictment of nation after nation after nation that God promises judgment and punishment upon Egypt and Babylon and Tyre and Sidon. Crete, all nations of the earth he punishes, he promises to punish in his judgment. He's the judge of the earth. He's the sovereign of, over all history. In Isaiah 45, long, long, long before his birth, Isaiah prophesies that God will use Cyrus, king of Persia, a man who wouldn't be born for many, many years, as his chosen instrument to redeem his people. But not only the sovereign over history, Now, in this final section, the sovereign over history who has plans for the future. Isaiah 56 through to 66. We move to the final chapter. So if you have your Bibles, open them up now to 66. Hopefully you have them there already. I want to read verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Heaven is my throne, says God. In Hebrew, the word heaven means the place where God is, but also means the sky. And in context, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, God is saying, the whole universe is my throne. Galaxies upon galaxies, nebula, billions and billions of light years across. This is where I rule, says God. And the earth is my footstool. I think when we say footstool, we often think of watching television with your feet comfortably parked up. This is not the image that Isaiah is painting for us or God is painting for us. This is the image of a conquering king with his defeated king at his feet and his foot firmly placed upon his neck. God is saying, the earth is my footstool. I am the sovereign Lord over the earth. And so he says, what would you give to me? I made it all. What are you going to make for me? Where do I rest? 
I just want us to just pause just for a moment at this point. Just to stop. And just look around you. Look at this room. Look at the people beside you and around you. All of this he made. The seats you're sitting on. The lights that you see. Look at your hands. The crinkles and calluses. He made it. Every breath you take, it's of air he made. Think about it, your house. Built by men he made. Breathing air he made. Of timber from trees he made. Of rocks he formed millions of years ago. It's all his. Your bank, your street, your neighbor, your friends, your children, this suburb, this city, this earth, all his. And so the question I want us to think about is, what could you possibly give him that he needs? Every sentence that begins with, God needs, it's wrong. God needs my love and affection, wrong. God needs my praise, wrong. God needs me to reach my friend for revival in this city, to build this church, wrong. There's plenty of things he wants from us, but there's nothing that he needs from us. He is eternally self-sufficient and absolutely all-powerful. He is all-knowing, all-seeing, and he is all-wise. He needs nothing from us, friends. Psalm 50, verse 9, the psalmist writes, or God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness is mine. God owns everything, friends. And he says to his people, you think I I need this stuff? I own it all. A similar situation comes to pass in Matthew chapter 3. When the religious people come to Jesus and Matthew writes, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The religious people didn't think they needed to repent because they believed that God needed them to keep his promise to Abraham. And Jesus looks them in the eyes and says, God could turn these stones into Abraham's children if he wanted. God needs nothing from you. So repent and believe. To the spiritually proud, God says, what could you possibly give me that I need? You know, this really speaks to my heart because my temptation in in ministry and serving in in church is to think, 
I'm dispensable. I'm indispensable. You know, that, that I need to go and visit that extra person. Because if I don't, they won't be all right. Or I need to know all the answers because if I don't, I can't possibly help that person. But the message of Scripture is there's only one who's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, ever-strong, and that's not me. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, he doesn't need us. He, he wants to use us, but he doesn't need us. There is nothing that he needs. Turn with me back a few chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 42. I read this just last week. I want to read it again because it's so good. Isaiah 42, verse 1. God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Isn't that beautiful? The father says, Behold my servant, behold my son, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The greatest love in existence within our God in three persons. Isn't that beautiful? No wonder he's not impressed with our achievements and boasting. All that's good stems from him. God is the eternal sovereign Lord who needs nothing from us. We, on the other hand, are completely lost and need his help. And to understand what draws his gaze, we not only need to see what our God is like, but, but we need to see something of ourselves and what we've done. And so we turn to our second point, the lost. You see, the relationship between us and God is entirely one way. God needs nothing from us. We desperately need help from him. Having seen something of who God is, we can now see how lost his people are. And Isaiah really shows us two ways in which his people are lost, in which God's people have been really led astray. And the first one is with idols. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but right at the very beginning of the book in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, God says this, he says, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people, do not understand. God is an anguished father with, with his own children who, who don't even know who he is. The ox knows its master, my people don't even know me. Verse 21 of chapter 1 goes on to say, how the faithful city has become a whore. He's a jealous lover a faithful husband with a bride who is like a prostitute, with other gods, with idols, bowing down and serving them. And so in 57, chapter 57, verse 13, God says, When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. Until we get to just the chapter before our passage this morning in 65. And friends, this, is, this passage has affected me this week. This, this is so powerful. God says in chapter 65, verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask of me. 
I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels who say, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. His people are a mess. Idolatry provoking him continuously, like unfaithful, like rebellious children to a father, like, like a, a prostitute to a faithful lover. More, they even claim to be holier than God is. That is, they are lost in pursuit of idols. And this really leads us to the second way his people are lost, and that is to false religion. That is, they're led astray into false religion. We're going to continue reading our passage, but I want you to hear these strong words from God. These words are designed to be offensive. And they're designed to be offensive because they express God's offense. Read with me from chapter 66, verse 3. God says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. This is strong language, friends. God says, he says, your sacrifices are like murder to me. Your sacrifices are like a defilement. Your sacrifices are like an abomination. Your sacrifices are like idolatry. Why? Why, why is God saying this to his people? Read verse 4. I also will bring harsh treatment upon them and will bring their fears upon them. Hear this. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. God says, I hate your religion. Because you don't even listen to me. And his people say to him, Stay clear of us, God, because we are holier than you. Well, friends, not only have his people been led astray by idols and by false religion, but but not just then, but now as well. You know, we also exchange God for idols, and they may be physical. You know, just this week I was, I was uh, 
going to a cafe near the offices and the lady who owns that cafe has a small shrine where she, she lights incense and, and puts offerings to the god of the shrine. And the other day, uh, there was a can of Coke and an orange there. I thought, I didn't realize God was such a sweet tooth. But, but it may be for some people here a physical shrine, a physical god that you worship. But for most of us, I think we have idols of the heart, things that we love, trust and obey more than God. It may be a relationship It may be children. It may be a career. And you place it on the throne of your life and you bow down to it with your love, trust and obedience. And God becomes a small part of your life. Not only do we exchange God for idols, but we exchange God for religion. We work and we work and we work to earn his favor. You know, the other day at Walk Up, where we, we met a lady who, who said to us, she said, I just can't believe that God would let all those sinners into heaven. It seems so unfair when I've worked so hard. And you know what, friends? She's exactly right. It is unfair. The problem with this lady was, however, she didn't realize that she was one of them, one of the sinners. She thought that by her many good works, she could obtain eternal life. You know, the lost is not something out there. The lost is us right here. Religion comes from the Latin word religio. It means obligation or bond. It's any time we say, God, if I do this, then he will be pleased or I will be saved. That by my own work and effort, I can find salvation, whether it be through sacrifices or meditation or attending church or many prayers or reading holy books like the Bible or worshipping him. If I do this, then God will accept him. And when we say this, we say to God, we are holier than you, we know best. And God says, if you don't listen to me, this stuff is worth than worth, worthless. I hate it. Having understood now something about who God is and how lost we are, we now move to our third point, the look. We're going to move to read our passage again, but friends, I just want to say, please don't miss this. As we go to read our passage again, God is going to tell you something that he's looking for, something that is great in his eyes. And there is quite possibly nothing more important that you will ever hear. Read with me, Isaiah 66, verse 2. We're going to continue reading the second half of verse 2. God says this, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one to whom I will look, says God. You see, this, has, this is metaphoric language. God doesn't have physical eyes. He's not a person. He's a spirit. And more than that, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Well, what does it mean? It's a word picture. It's a word picture. It means that this is what draws his attention. 
This is what draws his gaze. These are the things that he loves. Well, he identifies, or God says, three things that he's looking for, three things that he loves, three things that in a person draws his gaze. The first one is those who are humble. The word here refers to being without property, poor, needy condition, humble. It's related to a word we looked at last week that means to be bowed down. Friends, do you realize that God's attention is drawn like a magnet to those who are humble? In Mark chapter 10, we, we see Jesus is traveling up towards Jerusalem. He's traveling towards Jerusalem for the purpose of dying on a cross for his disciples, for all who will follow him. And while he's traveling up, two of his disciples, James and John, they're having this fight and they're arguing about who will be in the position of power in his new kingdom, who will be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing full well what's going on, calls them to himself and he says this in, in Mark 10:42. He says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exert authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, you know, in the world, people are all about having power. They're all about being number one and then letting everyone know about it. I want it to be different for you. If you want to be number one, Jesus says, you must be lowest of the low. You know, slaves and servants, even they have masters. I want you to be the lowest of all, the least among slaves. You know, again, this is such a rebuke to me. When so often, you know, I want it to be all about me. You know, look at me. Look at me. Give me praise and give me thanks and not him. A question I want to ask us this morning is, do you rejoice when people think less of you but more of Christ? Do you rejoice in that? Well, Christ says, God says, this is the one to whom I will look, the humble. You know, it's been famously said, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking of ourselves less often. And that's so true, isn't it? It's when we turn our gaze to Christ and see him. That's where we find humility. I'm going to read you a a quote that I think just beautifully sums this up. Um, It's by a guy I admire a lot, John Stott. John Stott writes this, he says, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, 
until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Isn't that true? God says, this is the one to whom I will look the humble. And we find humility by looking at the cross. Well, that's the first quality, the one who is humble. The second quality we find in this passage is those who are contrite in spirit, the broken in spirit. It's this idea of those who express remorse for their failures. You know, also recently uh, I was having a conversation with uh, someone who was saying that their friend who had made a lot of, a lot of mistakes in life, they'd slept with another man's wife, um, they'd, they'd cheated on their partner and now their partner was cheating on them and they're just at a place where they'd realized that they'd just made a lot of mistakes. But the thing was that they believed that because of their many mistakes, God couldn't accept them. But you see, the thing is, Jesus says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, I've not come for those that have no problems at all. I've come to heal the sick. You know, in Isaiah 63, just a few chapters before our chapter this morning, God's come out to rescue his people. He's come out and Isaiah has this picture of God and God is dressed in this white robe with a hem stained red. And the reason why his hem is stained red is because he's been trotting on this wine press. And the wine press stands for the blood of his enemies, his enemies he's been squashing under his feet. Why? Well, God says in Isaiah 63 verse 4, he says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, And my year of redemption had come. Hear this. I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. God looks for help. God looks for someone who is righteous God looks for someone who will stand with him in his cause to defeat his enemies and there is no one, not even one. And so he sends his son. In the second of the servant songs, we read this. It says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb, this is the servant to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. Christ comes and he is the only one who is honored in the eyes of the Lord. He is the only one for whom the Lord's look falls upon and he is well pleased. You might be sitting here this morning and thinking to yourself, Why does God need to send his son? Surely God can just forgive. Well, friends, it's because God is just that he cannot just forgive. Because of tragedies of abhorrent evil in the world like ISIS, where innocent men and women have been slaughtered, beheaded, persecuted. Because God is just, he can't just forgive. There must be a cost. But because God is love, 
He doesn't want the cost to fall upon us. And so the triune God, eternally satisfied in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all through eternally satisfied, needing nothing from anyone, but creating this world out of overflow of his love, because he has always been a father, loving a son through his spirit, sends his only son to come and live an innocent life. And then, shockingly, be mocked, be shamed, be beaten, be crushed, to die on a cross, bearing our sin, that God might be right in forgiving us, that God might be right in forgiving all those who put their trust in him. Not by works we stand. No, we all like sheep have gone astray but by trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, by asking for repentance, saying, Lord, I put my trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Simply to the cross I cling. Scandalous grace of a loving God. And it's received by those who are contrite in spirit, those who express remorse for the wrongs they've done. Well, this is the one to whom I will look those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and lastly, those who tremble at my word. It's those who stand in fear and awe before his word. Those that listen attentively to what he's saying. You know, I often hear people say, I couldn't believe in the God of the Old Testament, so full of judgment and wrath. You know, when we speak like this, we say to God, keep away from me, God, because I am more holier than you. I know best how to rule the world. We are saying, my way is best. And at best, this is foolish. At worst, this is most outrageous blasphemy. I want to ask us this morning, what's our practice? Do you tremble at this word? Or do you lord over it, refusing to listen and apply it, always questioning it? And this is my struggle, my challenge is that so often I I read the word as a word for others and not myself. You know, I often read it and I say, oh, thank you, Lord, for for this timely, timely word for Michael Pasolich, but not for me. Thank you, Lord, for providing this word for this other person. They really need to hear it at this time, but failing to listen what it has to say to me. Friends, do we we tremble at his word? Do we first receive it as a word to us? Verse 5 envisages people in the future Laughing, And God says to those who tremble at his word, don't worry about them. This is what the sovereign Lord of all creation wants. This is what he wants most from his people. That they would humbly take him at what he says. That they would humbly 
tremble at his word. Well, the Lord of all the earth rules over a people who are completely lost without him. And what does he love? What draws his gaze? His gaze is drawn to those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at his word. Friends, my prayer is for us as a church, as we finish our time in Isaiah, that we would see that God looks to those who humbly trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you so much this morning for your word to us, a word that is powerful, a word that is sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, we acknowledge our failure at times to receive your word with fear and trepidation, to listen to your word. Lord, we pray, forgive us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in you, our sovereign Father who is good who is loving, who is merciful and kind, who would not spare any good thing from us, even his very own son. Lord, how can we thank you enough for all you are? May you be praised. May you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.